0: To the Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriyaku, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, I'll be discussing the detective comedy There's Always a Woman from 1938, the first of three screen pairings of Joan Blondell and Melvin Douglas. It was directed by Alexander Hall and produced by Columbia Pictures, and also stars Mary Astor, Frances Drake, Thurston Hall, and an uncredited Rita Hayworth in one of her early film roles. There's Always a Woman is a whodunit comedy, and don't worry, I won't say who did it. Bill Reardon, played by Melvin Douglas, is a private detective who decides to return to his old job working as a special investigator for the district attorney. His wife Sally, played by Blondell, doesn't want him to give up his business, so to earn Bill some much-needed money, she accepts a case from a wealthy woman named Lola Fraser, played by Mary Astor, who wants her husband Walter's former girlfriend Anne investigated. Sally convinces Bill to take her out to a nightclub to spy on Anne. It's there that she overhears Anne's fiance, Jerry, threaten Walter. Later, Walter ends up dead, and it's up to Bill and Sally to find the killer. To understand how There's Always a Woman came to be, we need to go back to the spring of 1934 and the release of a detective comedy that would inspire a series of its own, as well as countless imitators of varying quality. That film is Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's The Thin Man, based on the novel of the same name by Dashiell Hammett, directed by one take Woody Van Dyke, and starring William Powell and Myrna Loy as the sleuthing married couple Nick and Nora Charles.
1: Pretty girl. Yeah, she's a very nice type.
2: You got types?
1: Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments to see you. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice, and I was so young I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side.
2: By the way, how is your father's
1: side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours?
2: Say, how many drinks have you
1: had? This will make six
0: martinis.
2: All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, we'll line them right up here. Yes, ma'am.
0: Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I can assume that you're already a classical Hollywood cinema fan. So I'm sure you already know that the thin man was a cultural phenomenon. It was released on May 25, 1934, to overwhelming box office success, earning $1.4 million in total sales. Positive critical reviews championed the sparkling banter from screenwriters Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, as well as Powell and Loy's undeniable screen chemistry as the heart and soul of the film's allure. MGM had a smashed success on its hands, and consequently, the other Hollywood studios studied the Thin Man in an attempt to replicate their winning formula. The Thin Man inspired an entire cycle of mystery comedies, including Star at Midnight, The Ex-Mrs. Bradford, both of which also starred William Powell, The Mad Miss Manton, which I covered earlier this season, and Fast Company, a film about rare booksellers Joel and Garda Sloan who solve crimes, and which spawned two other sequels. As I mentioned in my episode on The Mad Miss Manton... The sheer number of films in the mid-to-late 1930s detective comedy cycle is indicative of screwball comedy's malleability. The basic characteristics of the genre, particularly the sophisticated banter of the lead couple, could be cloned fairly easily and molded to fit different scenarios. The detective comedy cycle also speaks to the way Hollywood tried to duplicate the lightning-in-a-bottle popularity of certain film releases. On my episode about The Egg and I, I mentioned Barbie, and… I hate to bring it up again, but it is a good modern comparison. In the wake of Barbie's success, we learned that Mattel was firing up their own toy cinematic universe with over a dozen or so projects in various stages of development. And a similar phenomenon occurred 90 years ago with The Thin Man. However, there was only one problem. The difference between The Thin Man and its imitators is that only the original featured William Powell and Myrna Loy. When Bill Powell said it, quote-unquote, didn't feel like acting when he worked with Loy, it shows. They're completely in sync with one another, and it's like you're watching two best friends having a swell time. They made detective work seem like almost a party, and in some of the films in the series, it was. Nick and Nora are career-defining roles, and one of the biggest reasons why The Thin Man remains such a beloved film 90 years later. Powell and Loy's screen couple are iconic. None of the subsequent detective comedies really come close to capturing the magic of that film, but in the wake of its release, Hollywood producers would be damned if they didn't try one film is almost as good, and that is There's Always a Woman. There's Always a Woman began as a short story of the same title by Wilson Collison, which ran in the January 1937 issue of American Magazine. Collison's original story was much more heavy on the mystery and light on the playful marital hijinks, but the bones of the narrative were already there. I mentioned Collison's name on the Madness Manton episode. He's the author of such screenplays as Red Dust, Smart Girls, and Megumbo, as well as the novel Dark Dame, upon which the Maisie film series with Anne Southern was based. Columbia Pictures bought the film rights from Collison in mid-spring, with the understanding that he would not be the one to work on the adaptation. Although he had ample experience as a Hollywood screenwriter— the studio decided to give the adaptation project to Gladys Lehman, the screenwriter of such films as the 1932 version of Backstreet, Death Takes a Holiday, and Poor Little Rich Girl. While Collison undoubtedly understood his story and characters better than anyone else, Lehman's knack for complex characterization made her the ideal runner-up choice to lighten the original mystery elements. On June 29, 1937, Columbia announced their schedule for the 1937-38 season, which included 62 feature-length films, 126 shorts, and 4 serials. Among the titles they previewed was There's Always a Woman. As Lehman worked on the script, Columbia producer William Pearlberg and studio head Harry Cohen set about selecting the director and cast. To helm the project, they chose Alexander Hall, who began his Hollywood career as a theater actor and, later in the early 1920s, a film editor and assistant director at Paramount. In 1937, Hall signed a seven-year contract with Columbia and he would remain at the studio until 1947, during which time he made such films as Here Comes Mr. Jordan and My Sister Eileen. Hall was a well-respected and proficient journeyman director, someone who could lead by example and get the job done efficiently. It was Hall's competency that made him a favorite of Harry Cohen's, who later persuaded the director to return to the studio in 1953, after several years absence, to direct Let's Do It Again, the less than stellar musical adaptation of The Awful Truth.
2: Show. so smart sophisticated a little risque but then that's courtney and the music it's the brightest work he's ever done
1: courtney make a pass at you
2: why courtney always makes passes at me
1: you seem to encourage it
2: with courtney you don't have to it was great while it lasted it was real, it was grand, it was fun. We were so close when we started. But our basket of dreams came apart at the seams.
0: So farewell,
2: happy landing.
0: This is... There's Always a Woman was Hall's first Columbia picture and has set the tone for his particular affinity for light romantic comedies. For the leading roles, Bill and Sally Reardon, Columbia needed actors that could replicate the witty sophistication of William Powell and Myrna Loy. On July 22, 1937, less than a month after Columbia announced the film, They revealed that they intended to cast Loretta Young and Randolph Scott. On my episode about It Happened One Night, I mentioned that Columbia had a considerably smaller roster of movie stars under contract than some of the other Hollywood studios. So to compensate for their small talent pool, they would often borrow actors from other companies around town. Columbia was keen to cast Young, but she was under contract with 20th Century Fox so when they made inquiries in the early fall, they discovered that she was already committed to the John Ford adventure film Four Men in a Prayer. Loretta Young was out. They then set their sights on their runner-up choice, Warner Brothers star Joan Blondell. Script delays made Warner Brothers anxious to sign off on the Lono deal, but they eventually relented, and Blondell's casting was announced on December 11, 1937. Not long after the ink on her Leno deal was dry, Blondell declared publicly that There's Always a Woman would be her penultimate film to fulfill her existing studio contract with Warners, and that following the completion of her next film back at her home studio, which would ultimately be off the record with Pat O'Brien, she was to embark on a freelance career which in the 1930s was not entirely uncommon for Hollywood actors. Blondell's biographer, Matthew Kennedy, explains that although the details of Blondell's departure had not yet been sorted out, she wanted to get Warner's attention. Years later, in an interview from the 1960s, Blondell recalled that she used to work six days a week, including all of Saturday night, saying, and I quote, It was a rare Sunday morning when I dragged home from the studio without seeing the sun up. And if we finished a picture on Saturday night, we'd begin a new picture on Monday morning. In jumping the gun a bit, Blondell was attempting to make a point that she was fed up with the rigorous schedule that Warners had asked of her for the past several years. And she wanted a change. Blondell came to Hollywood several years earlier in 1930, after a successful career on the vaudeville circuit. Her second Warners film release, the crime drama Sinner's Holiday, was a Broadway adaptation. Both she and her co-star James Cagney reprised their roles from the stage, and they would go on to work together five more times in such films as Gold Diggers of 1933 and Footlight Parade. Blondell's snappy disposition made her Warner's ideal fast-talking blonde, and she excelled in musicals and light comedies such as Havana Widows with Glenda Farrell and Dames, the latter with her second husband and fellow Warner star Dick Powell. Here's Blondell, in her own words, explaining her early career to Edward R. Murrow on Person to Person.
1: Uh, John, you've had one of the longest Hollywood careers on record. How many pictures would you guess you've made? I guess 97.
2: <laughs> and in the, um, the first 30 to 27 months I was in Hollywood, I made 32 pictures. They kind of panned me on the way to the restaurant and back. Of course, they were, um, they were not... 32 different stories. It's the same story. I just changed clothes and talked fast.
1: Looking back, are you ever sorry that you allowed yourself to be typecast in all those chorus girl roles? Would well, really? you prefer to a dramatic part?
2: Ed, I had no choice about the typing business. I was under contract at the time, and at first it upset me because I considered myself at a very young age to be dramatic. But I have come to the conclusion that that uh, comedy is a very, very important contribution to the theater, and that if you can make people laugh, you can make them cry. And I'm always grateful for a good part, be it comedy or drama.
0: Blondell's personality and acting style made her a natural fit for the fast-talking dame character type, and following the release of There's Always a Woman, she was voted by moviegoers as Public Gold Digger Number 1. A riff on one of her most famous film roles. Blondell had a knack for comedy, but when she was given the opportunity, she proved equally adept at drama, and that made her the perfect fit for the spunky and determined Sally. Blondell's personal life threw a wrench in Columbia's shooting schedule. When the studio signed her, they learned that she was pregnant. So, to accommodate her, they pushed the production schedule up from early spring to January of 1938. However, Blondell's pregnancy wasn't necessarily a problem. The actress later observed, and I quote, My pregnancies didn't halt any shooting. As the months went on, I worked behind barrels, desks, anything to hide my middle. The way I figure, my son was in eight pictures, and my daughter was in seven. With the change to the production schedule, Columbia realized that they could not secure Randolph Scott, a Paramount contract actor, in time because he was scheduled to go on location in Texas for the appropriately titled Western The Texans in February. The clock was ticking, so Columbia decided to stay in-house for the Bill Reardon role. They selected one of their own contract stars, Melvin Douglas. Now, I just... Gus Douglas in my episode on Theodore Goes Wild from last season. He began his career on the stage working in Shakespearean stock and later on Broadway. His first film, Tonight or Never, was an adaptation of a production he originated on the stage, and he later signed a $900-per-weeks contract with Sam Goldwyn. Between 1931 and 1942, he appeared in 44 films while under contract at both MGM and Columbia. One of the films, of course, was There's Always a Woman. Douglas really excelled at playing what he described as drawing room playboys, even though he later admitted that he was typecast, saying, and I quote, I became a kind of standard brand, sophisticated, tongue-in-cheek drawing room type. It was the can of peas that sold best," end quote. Still, Douglas was the ideal actor for a character like Bill Reardon, who was obviously modeled after the suave martini-drinking detective Nick Charles. Bill is markedly less pithy than his cinematic inspiration, but Douglas's dapper sensibility brought a worldliness that upheld the urbane spirit of William Powell's performance. There's Always a Woman began production on January 5th, 1938, and according to Blondell, She and Douglas immediately, quote-unquote, clicked as a couple, and they also got along swimmingly with Alex Hall. According to Matthew Kennedy, Douglas's wife Helen came to set and observed her husband and Blondell filming a scene in which they kissed passionately. Helen allegedly joked to her husband, Sometimes I wish you worked in a bank. Production wrapped on February 17th, and the film was released on April 20th of that year. Reviews were positive, with the New York Times praising it for its superb job of all-around spoofing. The thin man of the lower income bracket. The same reviewer praised it for its, and I quote, deaf direction with really superb work from Joan Blondell. While gossip columnist Ruth Waterbury gushed that Blondell Sally, and I quote, acts like a nut, but is acting only. Really, she's as bright as a mirror in the sun and much more gleefully exhilarating. Meanwhile, Times critic praised Melvin Douglas for putting on a cheerful air of informality. By making crime detection safe for the younger married set. PhotoPlay noted that the film brazenly snatches an idea from an earlier success, meaning The Thin Man, but they also added that it was surprisingly entertaining. The film's box office success prompted Columbia to order a sequel called There's That Woman Again, but by the time it was slated to begin production, Blondell was visibly pregnant, so her role was taken over by Virginia Bruce. However, Columbia was still eager to capitalize on the Blondell Douglas screen chemistry, so they later were re-teamed in Good Girls Go to Paris and The Amazing Mr. Williams, both released in 1939 and also directed by Alexander Hall. Comparisons between There's Always a Woman and The Thin Man are useful to understand the film's historical context, but they can only take us so far. Bill and Sally Reardon are cut from the same cloth as Nick and Nora Charles, but Douglas and Blundell do not merely imitate Powell and Loy. There's a typical screwball edginess and antagonism to their relationship that we don't necessarily see consistently in the Charles' marriage, but it's not a mean spirited edge. Bill and Sally drive each other mad, but they're also passionately in love. The Reardon's battle of the sexes dynamic is set up from the film's first scene to establish their characters, and, crucially, it helps to distinguish them from their cinematic competitors. This is not merely a Thin Man knockoff. The film opens in Bill's office, where he laments that he can no longer afford to remain self-employed.
2: Now that settles it. From now on, I'm your secretary.
1: No, no, no thanks. I don't need a secretary. I don't even need a stenographer. Are you go on home, see if you can't think up a good menu for a change. I'm
2: tired of going home cooking for you. I want to go out in the world and meet people.
1: Oh, no, no, it's no life for a girl like you. Millions of clamoring clients, the white lights, the gay nightlife. Oh, no, go home. Go home, little girl, before it's too late.
2: Mister, for better or for worse from now on, I'm your secretary.
1: All right, take a letter.
2: To whom, please?
1: Ah, what's the difference?
2: Oh, Bill, keep your chin up. Rome wasn't built in a day.
1: Who cares about Rome? All I'm interested in is the career of William H. Reardon. Now listen to me, young lady. Six months ago, I was making $3,500 a year as a special investigator in the district attorney's office.
2: Mm, doing all the work while the DA got all the glory. Now, you listen to me, Bill Ray. I
1: did once. Now, look at me, my own boss. No work, no glory, and nothing a year. Success.
2: Someday you'll thank me for making you go on your own. You're the best detective in this town, and you know it.
1: Yeah, I know it, and you know it. The trouble is, nobody else knows it.
2: Someday they'll find out.
1: Now tell me something, Snugs. If I'm as smart as you say... How'd I happen to fall for a dumb dame like you?
2: Believe me, I've sat
1: up nights worrying about just that thing.
0: Blondell and Douglas carry Lehman's snappy, fast-paced dialogue effortlessly, ping-ponging back and forth with the familiarity of a couple that go together like a hand in glove. Bill calls Sally a dumb dame because he knows she can take it, and she hands it right back to him with her characteristic wit. It's critical that the film establishes their affectionate ribbing early on because it underscores their sharp sense of humor and, as I'll discuss in a bit, just how integral both are to solving the case. Their playful banter continues at the swanky nightclub, the Skyline Club, where they scout out Lola Fraser and her entourage at a nearby table. As the night grows longer, the Reardons get drunker and drunker. By last call, they're visibly intoxicated, as exemplified by a shot of the couple playing a sloppy game of footsie under the table. What did the lawyer say then?
1: well in new york state the grounds are desertion insanity a couple other things in california is mental cruelty uh
2: what's mental cruelty
1: refusing to dance with your husband when he wants to dance dancing with him when he doesn't want to dance snooping. snooping when
2: he doesn't want to dance and dancing when he doesn't want to snoop
1: yeah Russia, a man gets the alimony. Oh,
2: let's go to Russia.
1: All right, Sally. Let's go to Russia. Waiter. Timetable. Where's that waiter? Waiter. Waiter. Sally. Oh.
0: Sally. In typical screwball fashion, the Reardon's intimacy is conveyed through their verbal sparring. As I've discussed on previous episodes, the production code severely restricted the representation of physical intimacy in classical Hollywood films. But even in the absence of any overt romance, it's not hard to tell that the Reardon's are mad about each other. In the scene I just played for you, they nuzzle their foreheads together sweetly. When Sally purrs, let's go to Russia, Douglas grabs Blondell's chin from below and pulls her toward him for a kiss, and he affectionately touches her nose these small gestures demonstrate their compatibility bill may think sally is a pest at times but she's his pest and he wouldn't have it any other way A running gag in The Thin Man is that Nora Charles finds Nick's line of work amusing, and she consistently tries to muscle her way in on the action. She wants to be a detective too. And that's true of There's Always a Woman, but Sally is much more central and active an agent in Bill's detective work. Sally engages Lola Fraser, and she takes the initiative to scope out and interview subjects. Bill may be the detective, but Sally's just not Mrs. Reardon. She's a sleuth in her own right. And early on in the film, she even pretends to be one to gain Lola's trust. The
2: detective's business, never to forget a face. Are you a detective? Oh, yes, yes. I'm Mr. Reardon's chief operator. I handle all the women clients. You see, women often feel they can talk more freely to another woman. There may be something in that. Uh, do sit down. There. You'll promise to keep the matter confidential? Oh, I won't even discuss it with Mr. Reardon. He'll have to know, won't he? Not unless you want him to. Your case will be entered on our books as a number. Just a moment. Oh. Uh, Our last case was number 375. Your case number will be 376. Now, what can I do for you? Someone I'd like to have followed. Her name is Anne Calhoun. Has this inscription anything to do with it she was engaged to my husband before I mm, I'm beginning to understand there hasn't been anything to understand until recently suddenly mr. Fraser's been getting letters and phone calls from her I haven't spied but I know her handwriting and I know her voice there's something going on between them and you've got to find out what it is 376 I'll stake my reputation on it if I don't solve this case before the first of the month I'll retire from business fine tomorrow I'm going away on a two weeks trip When I get back, I want a complete report on Ann Calhoun. Everybody she sees and where and when she sees them. You go away and forget it. Maybe I'll have good news for you when you get back. Any news would be better than this suspense.
0: Sally has an air of self-confidence that makes us believe she loves every minute of this work. She's almost more enthusiastic than Bill, whose blasé attitude even gets on Sally's nerves. But the scene I just played shows us that Sally is quick-witted. She uses her feminine charm to get Lola to let down her guard. And when she tells Lola that her last case was number 375, the camera cuts to an insert of an overdue rent notice for $375. Sally is thinking on her feet. Now, it's always tricky discussing detective films because I realize not all of you have seen it and I don't want to spoil anything for you, so without getting too into the weeds about the mystery, I will say that both Mary Astor and Frances Drake do superb jobs with their supporting characters. Drake is one of my favorite classical Hollywood-era supporting actresses, and as an aside, she and I went to the same school and I always used to admire her glamorous movie star portrait on the wall of notable alumni. Her Anne is sophisticated and aloof, the perfect foil for Lola's heavy emotion. In the scene you just heard, Mary Astor plays the part of the scorned wife to a tee. Her eyes fill with tears and her voice trembles at the mere mention of Anne. She really lays it on thick for Sally's benefit. Her first appearance in this film gives us a peek at the icy Bridget O'Shaughnessy that she would later embody in The Maltese Falcon. It's really a remarkable performance. But you'll have to watch the film to see exactly how Aster and Drake fit into the story. And that's all I'll say about them. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned Bill and Sally's playful affection, but physicality in There's Always a Woman also manifests in charming slapstick touches. The film is not of the rough and tumble, nothing sacred, or bringing a baby screwball variety, but it does use slapstick to lighten certain mystery plot points. My favorite, and arguably the most effective, is the morning after Bill and Sally's big night out at the Skyline Club. They're both hungover, but Sally awakens first and fetches the morning paper. She sees the headline, Skyline Club Party Ends in Murder, so she calls a newspaper to give them a tip, but she'll only tell them if they come to her apartment.
2: Hello, dispatch. Give me the city desk. City desk. Good morning. Could I interest you in the Fraser murder? You might? Why? Did you kill him? No. But I think I know who did. Sally Ridden of the Ridden Detective Agency. You know.
1: No, I don't know, but go ahead. Hey? What? Say that again. 63rd Street. We'll be right over. Fine, that's great. Stay right where you are.
0: In the next scene, Sally is sitting on the arm of a sofa, casually sipping her coffee as the newspaper photographer and reporter question what she knows. She lifts up the hem of her dress to show off her crossed leg. This is almost like a game to her. She loves the attention, and they are indulging her instinct for the theatrical.
1: Made this threat in the presence of witnesses. Do you mind giving me a little more? My about husband it. and
2: I both heard it. Where is your husband? Well, he's down at the DA's office covering the case from their angle. How did Marlowe look when he said it? Well, don't quote me, but he had a very ominous glitter in his eye. And you were close enough to see this ominous glitter in yes, his eye. Yes, I was. My back was right toward him. Marlowe would have killed Fraser right then and there if, if I hadn't stopped him. How
1: could you stop
2: him? Well, I threw a chair at Marlowe just as he was getting ready to draw his gun.
0: Interesting, if true.
2: Don't forget to put that the Reardon detective agency gave you your clue. Publicity helps, you know. Oh, yeah.
0: As the reporter continues to probe Sally for details, the photographer peeks into the crack of the Reardon's bedroom door. Bill, still groggy and hungover from the night before, slowly awakens and fumbles for his robe. The photographer snaps a picture.
2: (coughs) Oh, that's not fair, he has no pants on. Hey, give me that plate.
1: Come on, Joe.
2: You wanna be ashamed of yourself.
1: What happened? What's going on? What
2: was that noise? What was that noise? Oh, you finally heard something, did you? I've been slamming in and out doors all morning trying to wake you up. You were supposed to be down at the District Attorney's. You know what time it is? Ow.
0: This gag punctures the suspenseful atmosphere one would expect from a mystery story, and I think the film is very effective at blending the tones and pacing of whodunits and screwball genres. Slapstick is not overdone, and the scenes do not feel forced. They are comedic breaks in a high-tension story, and they remind us that Bill and Sally are just kind of stumbling their way through this mystery like the rest of us. Joan Blondell screaming, he's got no pants on, and frantically chasing the reporter and photographer out of her apartment like Keystone Cops, is just unbridled silliness. And a scene like this can really only happen in a screwball comedy. And that's why I think a film like There's Always a Woman is so magical. Screwball comedy makes the absurd feel normal. <laughs> well, almost that concludes this episode of the scruble story the scruble story was researched written and recorded by me olympia kiriaku All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. (laughs) Bye-bye!